I just want to uh, say thank you to all of you guys for being here tonight. It's such an honor and a privilege um, to be able to speak at Tequila, to be able to speak at something that's been going on for decades that people have been sewing into. And so I just want to thank all of you guys for giving your time and joining and partnering with what God has been giving here for the last 30 or so years. And so just thank you. Um, Something that I want to do, and I do this every time that I spoke, is when we come into worship and we and we focus on God, God's already here, and then He starts to show up and we start to become aware of what He's doing in the room. And sometimes in that transition from the musical aspect of worship into the message, we kind of kind of lose that feeling or that understanding or that awareness that God is here. And the word is just as much as worship as the music. And so what I like to do is I like to just take a moment. And if you're comfortable, just open up your hands. And we're just going to take a couple seconds and just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And just to become aware of His presence and just ask Him to speak to us Spirit, we welcome you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts That you would show us what it means to look more like Jesus. That you would show us what it means to be loved by you. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name. So since this is my first time speaking to you guys, I thought I'd share a little bit about myself just so you know who I am. Uh, James already shared a little bit, but um, as you know, my name is AJ. I'm from Vancouver. I grew up in Richmond. I lived there my whole life. Spent a couple years in California at a small Bible college called Calvary Chapel Bible College. I came back to Vancouver, um, worked at a place called the Union Gospel Mission, and then uh, just kind of did life there, served in the church plant, um, and, and it was at the Bible college that I really got to know Jesus, and that I really fell in love with Jesus. And um, ever since that point in my life, that was, that's a point in my life that I've seen a difference, and I've seen transformation of it as I've given my life over to Jesus. And um, so, yeah, in the end of April, I moved here. Um, my wife is from here. Uh, her name's Heather. She's over there. You can look her she made she made me shut her out. She wanted me to. She said if you don't, then there's an issue. So um, we got married in uh, June, June 16th. So it's a couple months ago. Uh, she's from here originally. So that's why that's what brought us here. Um, and ever since I've been here, it's just been amazing. Just what God is doing in this city, what God is doing through Tequila, through First Assembly, through all the churches throughout the city, the unity of these churches is incredible. So, as I begin tonight, I want to ask you guys two questions. 
And I want you to think about them for a minute and go over them throughout the night. And, and I'm going to come back to them throughout the night. First question, who are you? Who are you? Second question, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? A little bit more about myself. Understanding who I am hasn't always been easy. Knowing my identity, I have struggled with that. In the past, I put my identity in my personality, that I'm quiet, I don't talk to people. But that was a lie that I believed. I put my identity in my job. It defined me. I took pride in my job. It gave me pride, and I still struggle with that sometimes. I put my identity into relationships. Friendships, romantic relationships, I've allowed myself to be identified by having one or lack of one. I put my identity into who my parents are. And I put my identity in my holiness, which really isn't holiness at all, because if it's my holiness, then I've earned it, and I don't earn holiness, I receive holiness from God. I put my identity in going to church, attending prayer meetings, and evangelism. I've allowed those things to identify myself I think every single one of us here is seeking to understand our identity. And that's a human condition. Every single person that has ever existed on the earth is wanting to know what their identity is. They're wanting to know what their purpose is, which is found in your identity. And we all identify ourselves in the things that I mentioned. We all seek to identify ourselves in those things. And that, has, that began at the very beginning of the fall in Genesis when God created them in his image and then the enemy put doubt into their hearts and, and they wanted to give themselves their identity instead of being identified with who God is. But the problem with these things that I've mentioned of putting your identity in is that they will fail you. If you're identifying yourself in a relationship, that relationship will fail you because that person's not perfect. And you'll fail that person. Your parents will let you down. You might lose your job. There goes that identity. Your own holiness. When you sin, there goes your holiness. You can't be identified in that anymore. The problem when we allow ourselves to be identified by these things is we're actually allowing them to father us. We're putting that thing as our father because we get our identities from fathers. And Jesus says in Matthew 23 that we're actually not to call anyone on earth our father. I don't, that's not a legalistic thing that you can't call your dad father. I believe that it's, it's saying only God should have that. Only God should give you your identity. So again, 
I ask, who are you? And who are you becoming? If you have your Bible tonight, open up to Luke chapter 15. It will also be up on the screen if you don't have it. But in Luke 15, Jesus gives a parable that I believe details the heart of God. And there's two groups in the beginning of Luke chapter 15 that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees as well. So tax collectors and sinners is the first group, and then Pharisees is the second group. The tax collectors and the sinners, they're the immoral ones. They're the ones living wild lives, not following the law. The Pharisees are the ones who are religious, the ones who are following the law to a T. And they're not very happy that the tax collectors and the sinners keep flocking to Jesus. They say at the beginning, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in that day, to, ex to eat with sinners or to eat with somebody was to accept them. And so they weren't happy that Jesus was accepting them because he was a rabbi. And so Jesus tells a parable. He tells three parables, but we're only going to focus on the one that starts in verse 11, which is the parable of the lost son. I'm sure that we've all heard this parable before. It's pretty commonly taught on. But let's just see what God wants to speak to it, to us through it What he has to say about his heart to us tonight. So if you're like me, you might be thinking, oh, I've heard this parable taught on so many times, what else can I learn from it? And so I just want to say to you, have a childlike heart and open your heart to, be, to learn from it. So starting in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, what he's saying is, I wish you were dead, give me what's mine. Because that's exactly what he's saying. Because he, he deserved his inheritance, but he actually didn't get it until his father died. So for him to say that to his father was extremely disrespectful, and it would have shocked the people who were listening. Traditionally, the father actually would have driven the son out of the family for asking something like that. He rejected his father's love. He wanted all of his father's blessings without the relationship with the father. But the father, instead of responding and reacting to the rejection, he responded in love and he responded by lavishing his love upon his son. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many 
of my father's hired servants have food to spare. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So here's the son. He spent every last bit of what his father gave him, and he's literally in the mud with the pigs. And he remembers what his father had, that even the hired servants had plenty to eat. So he figured he would go to, back to his father, and he rehearsed his confession, and he, uh, he wanted to become the hired servant so that he could likely pay back his debt and then be welcomed back into the family. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In that day, a father, a respected older man, would never have ran. Children, young men and women would have ran, but an older man in that, in that tradition, in that community, would never have ran. But this father, he saw his son from a distance and he ran to him. The son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost in his town. So they began to celebrate. So the son had rehearsed his speech, and when he gets to his father, he's not even able to say it. He's in the middle of his sentence, and he starts saying it, and the father interrupts him and says, Quick, bring the best robe, and the best robe would have been the father's own robe. He ran to his son. His son was just with pigs. He's probably filthy, dirty, has no money. And the father, this established man, runs to his son in his, in his filth, and kisses him, puts his own robe on him, the best robe, and puts a ring on his finger and saddles on his feet. Then he brings the fattened calf, which would have been expensive at that time. Meat in the first place was a lot to give, but the fattened calf was the most. And so the father, by interrupting and not even letting him finish, is saying, no. You are my son. I'm not waiting for you to earn your way back. You don't have to. You're mine. I forgive you. Come home. You are welcome home. The story's not quite done yet. But we're going to pause here for a few minutes and focus on this younger son. The son is representative in the two people, in the two groups that are listening. The son is representative of the tax collectors and the sinners, this younger son. 
And I'm sure this younger son is representative of many of us, if not now, before. I know it was for me. I definitely identify with him in some ways. We rehearse our confessions when we messed up, when we sin. We rehearse our desire to come back to God. But God is there interrupting us. How many of you, when you were kids, did something wrong and then rehearsed an excuse to bring to your parents or avoided going home for as long as possible because you were scared of what the consequences were going to be? But then how many of you, when you got home, were loved and forgiven? Yeah, there's consequences. But it wasn't scary. But if that's you tonight with God, if you feel like you can't come home because you've walked away and you've ran away from God, I just want to say to you, come home. Because that's what the Father's saying to you. He's saying, come home to me, my child. Step into your identity as the son or daughter of God and know him as your father. Maybe you haven't had the best example of a father. Let God heal that in you by showing you what it looks like to be a father. You never have to earn the father's love. You never have to earn your identity as a son. We've given the name prodigal to this son, but he's never referred to as the prodigal in the story. He's only ever a son. He was, is, and will always only ever be a son to his father. So I ask again, who are you? Who is your father? And what is he like? If your idea of God goes up against what is revealed in Scripture, in this story, in many other stories, Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. If your idea of God goes up against who God is, then you need to have a fuller understanding of of who God is. A man by the name of Preston Sprinkle, it's a great name, says, if you aren't challenged by the scandal of God dying for his enemies, if you aren't stunned by Jesus beckoning the prostitutes to embrace their free pardon, if you haven't wept at Jesus' joyful pain on the splintered beam, if you aren't outraged by an unrobed king of kings and lord of lords turning the other cheek, resisting retaliation, Loving those on death row, we were all on death row, against all human logic, against all cultural norms, against every innate sense of justice, and if your stubborn inability to love your own enemy has not driven you back again and again to Calvary in the vacant tomb, where it was declared, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished, then I would suggest that you have not meditated on the scandal of the cross long enough. The message of God crucified should never get old. And grace should never be neutered and chained up inside the gated community. 
grace should, in a sense, offend us, and it should make us ask the question that Paul asks in Romans. Should I then go on sinning? Certainly not. Grace should make us ask that question, but then also because of how good grace is and how good God is, say no. Why would I keep doing that when I know how good my God is? But we're not done with the story. There's another son. And this son is representative of the Pharisees. And by this point, this story would have already challenged them of their understanding of who God is as a loving God. So verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So here's this son, the older brother. He's out in the field, he's working all day. He has no idea what's going on. He comes back from the field and he sees this party going on, he, he refuses to go in, he has a servant come out and tell him what's going on, and then he makes his father come out. That would actually have been disrespectful to his father to make him leave the party and come out to him. And then he says, verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? When he says, look, it's basically the equivalent of saying, look, you, you have done these things. I have been slaving away from you. This shows he didn't know who he is. He saw himself as a slave to his father, not as his son, working, toiling for his father's blessings, for his father's inheritance. He believes that he's earned what his father's just given him. And furthermore, by his father accepting the brother into, his fa into the family, it makes him an arrogant. So now the older brother's inheritance is even less because of it. But again, what does the father do? How does the father respond? My son, verse 31, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. He's saying, despite how you've spoken to me, you are welcome to the feast and all that I have is yours. He's inviting him in to the feast. This son represents the Pharisees, as I said. 
There's no end to this story. We don't really know what, the, what ends up happening to the son. Does he go in or does he remain outside of the feast? That's for the Pharisees to decide. That's for them to make that choice to come in or not. And I think that these two, two sons brought into our time can represent two different kinds of people. The younger son that we labeled the prodigal, he's the son who didn't grow up going to church, never knew who God is, but God pursues him and reveals himself to him and calls him and draws him in. And he comes to the Father and repents. He comes to God. The second one can represent those of us like myself, who have, have grown up in church from the time we were born. And sometimes it can be hard to accept the younger son back into the family. We might say, look at that. He spent 15 years doing whatever he wanted, and now he just gets forgiven like that? Yeah. He does. But so do you. So do I. Both types of people, the younger son, the brother son, the newly church, people who've been church for years, the religious, the Pharisees, they all need to have an understanding of who they are as sons. And we all need to have an understanding of what it means to meet Jesus. We need to have an encounter with Jesus. And the Pharisees aren't all bad. When you go, when you actually look at Acts, there's a point in the book of Acts where um, there's an argument happening about the Gentiles are becoming saved and the Jews send a letter saying that they need to be circumcised, and they're like, hold on, no, I, I thought it was freely given, free grace, but then there's, no, you need to be circumcised. So then they have this church meeting, and there's actually Pharisees that are part of the church of Antioch. There's Pharisees in that meeting that are talking about what it means to actually follow Jesus. So it can often look like the Pharisees are always bad people, but they are Pharisees who actually started to follow Jesus. And came to know him. So what I'm telling you tonight, and what I believe God is telling us tonight through His Word, is that you're not God, you're a son. You're not the religious older brother who, after stalking for a while, gets to come into the feast. You're a son of the feast is always been. You're a son and you're a daughter. And when I say son, I mean son and daughter. And nothing can change that you are a son and daughter. The feast is available to all. Come and eat. There's a, a painting of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's a picture of 
three of them sitting around a table, and they're, they're sharing in a meal together. But there's actually a fourth spot. That's for us. God is inviting us into community, into fellowship with Him, to have a feast, to eat with Him, because He accepts us. And He doesn't accept you because of anything that you have done. He accepts you because He's good. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. So I want to say to you guys that you have a Father who loves you, who is waiting for you, who wants to make everything that is available yours. You don't have to be an orphan. You get to be a son. Jesus knew who his Father was. Jesus never questioned who he was. Giving you a flute when he's led out to temptation. If you are the Son of God, do these things. That's what the devil wants to do, is he wants to put doubts into your mind about who you are as someone made in the image of God. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God comes in and he says, Who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you're naked? And what God's doing is he's wanting to reverse the doubt that the enemy put in them, that sin has put in them. You're a son. You're a daughter. When we don't operate in love and humility, it's because we've forgotten who we are. Pride. The older son was fooling. Pride says, you have to earn because it wants to look good. It wants to say, I have done these things, and therefore I am worthy. Therefore I am holy. We think that we're being humble when we say, I'm not worthy. But humility is is the ability to receive who God says you are. To accept that you have done nothing to make that true. So come home and receive from God. We have the band come back up. So again, I want to ask you guys, who are you? I hope that now you know who you are, that you can answer that you are a son or a daughter, and if you're not there yet, I hope that you are on your way to becoming a son or a daughter. Because there's more for you. There's more of a calling for your life. So now I want to focus on the second question I asked at the beginning of the night. First one was, who are you? Your sons and your daughters. The second question I ask is, who are you becoming? We're made in the image of God. God chose to create you in the image of God. God is, in his nature, a father. 
and there's and, and the mother as well. He's revealed himself as father, but there's motherly attributes given to him in scripture. So that's part of his nature. And so if we're made in the image of God, and Peter writes in his epistle that we're partakers of divine nature, which means we can become God. So you see at the garden when we lost and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was knowledge they were never supposed to possess in the first place. And suddenly they were given all these emotions that were not for them. These things that we believe are true to us are not true. Fear, anger, anything that makes us sin, that's not true. Those are all lies that we believe, that we've been given. But God wants us to become, he says we're partakers of the divine nature. We are becoming more like God. God created us, and when Jesus did this, he reversed everything so that we could become sons and daughters, so that we could become into our full creation, so that we could do things for God, so that we could do amazing things for God, so that we could become like him. And so when we look at this story, I don't believe that you're only ever called to be the younger brother, or you're only ever called to be the, young, the older brother. I believe that you're supposed to mature as sons and daughters into fathers and into mothers. I believe that we're called to mature and become like the father to the orphan sons and daughters that are lost in the city of Calgary, that are lost in Canada, that are lost in the world. We're called to father and mother them back into the family of God. If we're made in the image of God, who mothers and fathers, and it is also in our DNA, to welcome people home, to welcome people back into the family of God, to sit and eat with them just as Jesus sat and ate with them, and to accept them. Perhaps you're here tonight and you identify with the older brother, the religious brother. But I want to tell you, God is calling you to mature into love, to mature into a son, and become a father. Become a father to the younger brother who has lost his way. Perhaps you identify with the younger brother. That's not where you're supposed to stay. Because we're never a problem. We've always been a son. But your calling is to mature as a son into a father. And father, mother, the older brother, the religious brother. Now, I feel so sorry for you that you don't understand this grace that I've received. That you don't know what it looks like to walk in the authority as a son or daughter of God. This is our calling as sons and daughters of God to emulate His heart and share it with everyone. To invite people into the feast. God will use us to follow people, to help people receive their identity. So I ask, who in your life can you start to love anytime? Maybe you're not there yet. What steps can you take to come home tonight to know that you are a son of God? If you haven't returned yet, I urge you to come home. Return to the family. You're accepted, you're forgiven. Come inside and eat. Maybe you're outside of the feast. Can you just agree with everything that I've said tonight about God? And you don't understand grace. 
come inside of me don't stay outside of Jesus. What would it look like for the sons and daughters of God to step into our identity as people who have been freed from sin and freed from needing anything else but God in relationship with Him as well? What would Calvary look like if we started to father people Jesus came to redeem us, to make us new, to tell us who we were created to be, to glorify Him, to make His name worthy, to make Him known as the God who loves. Before Jesus, nobody understood or had ever heard of a God who was loving until Jesus came as the perfect image of the invisible God and revealed to the world what a loving God looks like. Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of brokenness. And you know what? He succeeded. He did it. Why don't we start to act like him? Why don't we step into that and know that we are free? If I don't believe that I'm a son, I'm never going to look like a son. If I don't believe that I'm a son, then I'm not going to be a son in faith. Believe in faith that you are a son or a daughter. Believe in faith. Declare it over yourself. That God has called you in to be known by Him. To have your identity in Him. So if you're here tonight, Thank you for joining us. 
Jesus, we receive your love tonight. Father, we receive your love tonight. Come, eat with us. Thank you. 